I worked as a market analyst and web developer for many years. I would spend the majority of my time sitting in low-lit offices with fellow developers working on various projects. One way we would pass the time and find the fun and interesting YouTube documentaries and discuss their content. One of our very favorite things to listen to were the various conspiracy theory videos that were being produced in the years following 9-11 and the Iraq War. Growing up, I had loved Oliver Stone's JFK, The X-Files, and Unsolved Mysteries, etc., etc., and found listening to these productions thought-provoking and a fun way to pass the time with my coworkers. However, we worked very long hours and found ourselves listening to more and more off-the-wall content. I began to notice that no matter the subject of the theory, they would eventually lead to more and more hateful conclusions to who was behind these so-called plots. Usually these bordered on anti-Semitic. Luckily, I worked with compassion and aware people who do not fall down the rabbit hole of conspiratorial thinking, and we began to ask ourselves, how do we end up listening to such fringe nonsense? Well, it was simple. YouTube kept suggesting them to us. The more we watched, the more the YouTube algorithm put in front of us, each video becoming, being further and further down the rabbit hole than the last. It was not until I finished my second year of grad school that I returned to thinking about the role of conspiracy theory in American culture. My coworkers and I were not the only ones who found this type of content interesting. In fact, with the proliferation and saturation of social media, their spread had only become more apparent. Birtherism, Jade Helm, Sandy Hook denial, and the, Veg the Vegas shooting, and the anti-vax movement. The list goes on and on. I began using the skills I learned in, gra in my graduate program to better understand the role of not only conspiracism in American culture, but the rampant societal paranoia and anti-intellectualism at its roots. After graduating with my master's, I turned my attention to tracking and understanding these various theories as they originated, developed, and spread. I began researching the threads of continuity between them and between those propagating them online. The 2015-2016 presidential race saw a massive spike in American conspiracism. The long-since-debunked claims of the Clinton body count theory began to spread. The leaking of the Podesta emails led to hashtag Pizzagate and the death of Seth Rich supercharged conspiratorial thought and anxiety entrepreneurs like Alex Jones, Paul Joseph Watson, and Mike Adams flourished. With the aid of Russian state-sponsored bots and trolls, conspiratorial memes and misinformation spread at a frightening rate. While service providers like Google, YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook have all attempted to hinder the spread of misinformation, they have failed at stopping it. Um, in fact, the social media sites have been a tool for those looking to radicalize others and have been instrumental in the proliferation of hate groups like Pre the Proud Boys, Patriot Prayer, as well as groups who want to accelerate or cause a second American Civil War, also known as Boogaloo Culture. These sites have also played a pivotal role in the development in a new and increasingly dangerous conspiratorial movement that is unlike anything before it. QAnon. My name is Tim Quill. I'm an educator and the father of a trans son. This is The Hardest Stone, written by T.R. Ritchie and performed by Belinda Bowler. This is the life I have been given. 
These are the seasons of my time And I am seeking out the light According to design I've weathered storms I cannot count To make this world my home In a place where small and twisted things Can split the hardest stone In one like me you might not see how I have managed to exist A fragile, crooked rack of limbs in terrain as rough as this But for those who take their chances here, experience has shown that sometimes small and twisted things can split the hardest stone. So shed no tears of pity here spin no tales of tragic grace just let it be enough that life is blooming in this rocky place it is the proof that seeds will grow Sometimes small and twisted things can split the hardest stone. It is the proof that seeds will grow wherever they are sown, and that sometimes small and twisted things can split the hardest stone. Thank you, Tim, for joining us today. This is the Voices of Idaho with Dan Prinzing and Adam Thompson. Hey there. This season, we're focusing on being an upstander. Tim, in your story... You've certainly hit our premise as an organization and the importance of education, that our journey as upstanders oftentimes includes becoming educated on the issues, but you've also hit on an important concern. How do I know what I'm educating myself on is true? That what sources I'm pulling, what I'm gathering, as I'm trying to become more informed, can I trust? Is it a hoax? What is that fake news? All the things that are being thrown about that try to discredit media. How do I know truth? 
That that's a very good question, Dan. <laughs> um, I I think that any educated, critical thinking person um, has the wherewithal to challenge their own conceptions and their own narrative if they understand what their narrative is. And so, by through self awareness of an understanding that. Just because something feels good to me, the information feels like it aligns with what I think. Um, I think that the role of education and the role of having your thoughts challenged in education gives you the idea that you're wrong. You, you're often wrong um, about many things mm -hmm. and, and being comfortable with being wrong um, as not a slight against yourself or your own intelligence, but rather an opportunity to grow. And so um, in a world w that is uh, in deluge with information and any information you want, whether it be positive or negative, um, I think having that critical, critical idea of challenging your own thoughts um, helps find the truth. Because I don't know if there is a T capital truth with anything necessarily. I find even in my own story that before going to college, my world was pretty black and white. Mm -hmm. But the further I went in higher ed, the grayer the world became. Do you find that your students capture or understand the gray zone that there become so many stories within? There's not a set black and white. Oh, without a doubt. As far as my students go, um, ethics is a big part of the class that I teach and the courses that I teach. And I, I give them a questionnaire in the beginning and says, are you an ethical person? What did they, where, did your, where did you learn your Where did you learn your moral code? Um, and many of them will, will say, well, of course I'm an ethical person. You know, I, can, I make good choices. I'm a good person. And they see it very black and white. But through challenging them, with the idea and difficult ethical questions um, about our time. Sometimes they're hypothetical, sometimes they're historically based, sometimes they're um, currently based. They realize that the world is not that binary and that binary thinking um, is very, can be very dangerous because if, if I'm right, if it's black and white and I'm right, that means that I'm, I'm right, and anybody else who disagrees with me is wrong. Mm -hmm. And that's a very divisive way to see the world. And so they leave my class realizing that ethics isn't just, well, do the right thing. That do the right thing is often a very difficult and sometimes impossible thing to do. A hundred percent. hundred percent good thing. Right? Yet, you know, and, and so in, uh, linking it to our topic today as being upstanders, mm -hmm. Not always the easiest thing to do, right. but the right thing to do. Exactly. So we recognize that even at the choice to be an upstander comes with choices. That, as we will repeat throughout this season, being an upstander doesn't mean we're all doing the same thing. It's just that we're each doing something. So in addition to your course, mm -hmm. your interaction with students on campus, what do you see or your acts as an upstander? Where are those moments do you feel like, okay, this is how I'm stepping up? Uh, I, I think that creating 
um, within the classroom and, and outside the classroom because the professor's job or an educator's job in general, it, it should be beyond the classroom. And instead of the Eurocentric kind of approaches to education that I, I, I experienced mm-hmm. as an undergraduate and as a graduate student, um, that that incl- part of that breaking down that Eurocentric approach to education is to is to have your students make sure that you're accessible to them beyond just the content and the assignments and the assessments or whatever it may be is that you're there for them regardless. Oh, you mean right? you're a person. You're a, you're a person. You treat them as a person, <laughs> right? Um, and one of the ways of doing that is um, ensuring that the class is as accessible as it can possibly be to anyone and everyone within that course. And um, that begins right right very shortly after the class begins of, of letting the students know that what my pronouns are and then having all of them explain what their pronouns are, their preferred pronouns are. And I think it's breaking down those, the, those barriers that some of us face, that some um, aspects of the class face. Another one is to always make sure that students understand the student support services that are available to them. Mm-hmm. Um, because it, when you look out and you're lecturing over you know, 30 to 60 students, um, you don't know their story. You don't know what challenges they face. And so creating that, that inclusivity with them, I think, is one way to do that, um, to ensure that everyone has an equal shot, an mm-hmm. equal opportunity to get as much out of the class as they can. The modeling of that, what we wish society would be? Say that again. As it is this, the modeling of that we wish society would be. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So within that environment, though, how do you handle the student that steps in? No, I disagree. No, that's wrong. No, I don't understand why you're doing it. Uh, why do I have to recognize that pronoun? That's not right. Right. Um, some of the things that uh, I, I, I run into that often. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I have been very fortunate that my students have been receptive and um, in, in a varying scale, but none of have, none have been completely rejected, reject what I'm trying to say. Um, and one of them has to deal with just the idea of privilege in general. Um, Boise State, um, although is becoming more diverse, is not the most diverse university there could be. And many students are white, and and the idea of white privilege feels shameful to them, and they don't want to be shamed in class, or they view it as liberal indoctrination, or, you know, social justice, you know, cultural Marxism kind of mm-hmm. approach to things. Um, and I try my best when a student... Um, is unreceptive to that kind of thought is to take away any feeling for one having them understand that the feeling of shame that they are having is only an indicator of the privilege in which they have and I try to do that in a manner that is not combative Mm -hmm. and and try to find some way that they can understand that term in a way that relates to them, whatever that may be. If it if it coming from a combative arena, 
of saying, well, I, I, I'm white, but I, I didn't have any privilege. I grew up ex, you know, as, you know, very poor. That, that, that's a, that's a fine statement. And, and I, I want to identify and understand that's, that's absolutely something, you know, that's part of you. And I'm not trying to discredit that. Um, but ask them in other ways that aren't economic in that Mm -hmm. example of pushback is to say in how, in other ways are you privileged over others? And to get them to understand what that term is, to understand that the world is not an equal place, that it is not an inclusive place, all that. It can be, it, it is growing to be more so, um, but that we have a long way to go and that we can all work as soon as we understand what this, what these terms or these, these terms that they're having problems with or, or tension with, that they're terms that, can, that are important to understand and to relate to, in however we can get to relating to them, um, between the student and I, um, because once we relate and see what the term is, that then we can do something about it, societally. You lead me into an area that we've talked a lot in the programming of the Wasmus Center, that in the act of being an upstander, we use the acronym, the ACT, the Ask, Choose, Teach, can we confront without being confrontational? I think so. How, um, would, that, how would that play out in your classroom? Let's, let's go a little deeper on that mm-hmm. scenario with it. The students that are given a real pushback. Right. The tendency, do I want to jump in? Or... Okay, can we create a conversation now? How does that play out? That, to me, how it's played out is um, I've had a number of students um, who have a difficulty with with some of the more um, inclu- the, the pushes towards diversity, inclusion, and equity. Mm-hmm. Um, and in those, I find that if I can create a situation where there's a conversation, besides the, the quickest way to get someone to not listen to you is just to tell them they're wrong. Mm-hmm. It's the, that, Shut down the conversation. Exactly. Yeah. You know, aggression will only be met with aggression. aggression. And so trying to find that, mid, that, that middle ground. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a student who was absolutely 100% sure that COVID-19 was a uh, man-made virus. And it was right, it was before the lockdown. So uh, luckily I was able to Mm -hmm. have a conversation with the student. And the student was um, born in China and lived a a good portion of his life in China before moving to the United States with his family. And he was was absolutely adamant. And um, it, it, in the class, because we were talking about the things that were happening in the moment, because the class was very applicable in the springtime mm-hmm. when all the lockdown ha- was happening, and I I heard what he had to say in the class, and I I simply did not have the tools in that just to 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 have the conversation, so I told him, can you please just write down like your thoughts right now, uh, not right now, but you know, email them to me, mm-hmm. and I will address them to you. I will address each and every one of your points to the best of my ability. And 
Um, he, he was very receptive. This is a great student, by the way. I mean, really great, really outstanding student. And I was able to go home, read it, process it, think about it, create specific answers for him. And we had a conversation both both over email where he said, oh my gosh, because he, he was pointing to different articles. And I was able to say, hey, you, you need to look where you're getting these articles from because these are misinformation. This is This is misinformation. These are... These are very untrustworthy news sources you're using. And it was able to show that to him. So it became a learning exercise. And he came out of that. Um, and it, it, I knew it was him on my evaluations because they're all, you know, of course, secret. But I knew it was him because he, he wrote a very nice evaluation saying, like, this professor really listened to what I had to say. And, and, and actually was able for me to, to pull me out of a, a rabbit hole I was going down. You know, I think such an important point there that, well, a couple of pieces that if we can confront and stand up without becoming confrontational, good questions make good conversations. Mm-hmm. And the very practice of stepping back and listening, listening to where someone's coming from, thinking through before we jump in and then continue a conversation as a conversation. I think it's such an important practice and one that many would say is missing at this moment, that we've become so polarized that, well, it's fight against fight and we don't listen, that we're grounded in a position. You mentioned you have a son. What if, as under the T in our act, teach by example of how you lead your life, what would you hope your son witnesses or gains from your example of being an upstander? Uh, Hopefully a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The one thing that I want him to gain is from, through my example and I think that with children, they, they get far more than yeah. from what you, what you tell them is such a small point. Right. It's what they see right. is the idea that um, the, the compassion for the other human, for, for, for the other person mm-hmm. and compassion for people equally. Um, and that in a polarized world, in a world um, that is seemingly more locked in their own narrative um, and seemingly um, having difficulty finding a shared truth about the world or, or few, fewer truths about the world, fewer and fewer shared truths mm-hmm. of the world, is that even in that divisive world, divisive kind of environment some, that often occurs, that we have, um, that he sees that even regardless of differences or um even conflict is that the other is the other person isn't the other. They're a person. So through the eyes of Tim, what is our shared truth? That is, that is an excellent question. The shared truth. I think uh, I'm going to try this answer. 
Um, that in, in a world of seeming certainty, that there is so much we may be wrong about. If we look, the, the further we go back in time, things that were held as concrete, absolute social norms, um, whether it be segregation as a social norm. Now there are people who are against it, but it was a social norm that even, that a huge amounts of population believed were that, well, that's just the way it is, right? And we look at back at that and say, how could they have been so wrong, right? And keep going back, slavery, um, women, you know, the uh, marginalization of women, mm -hmm. you name it, right? Mm -hmm. At a certain point in time, people thought that was that right thing, that that, that was right. And I think one of the shared truths is, is that um, we don't know what we're wrong about in this moment. Mm -hmm. There's something that's 30, 40 years from now, they will look back and they will say, in 2020, can you believe that the shared truth that they thought this was a good idea and living with the idea that we don't know what we're wrong about maybe the only shared truth that I hope the world sees and understands more mm -hmm. is that we don't know everything and we are wrong probably more we're probably wrong more often than we would ever believe and that we have a whole lot to learn together true absolutely to get to that place right. when we can look back can and say, say and say, wow, we were really wrong about that. Um, that we, yeah, we do have an awful lot to learn. Makes me wonder, because as you were responding, you know, using words like compassion, when we begin to think in the differences between sympathy and empathy, when we begin to examine how we relate to and interact with others, When I look at somebody else or I listen to someone else's story and I say, that's just not me. That's not my story. That's not my group. That's just, no. How do we break down and move from the concept of that's a them to, no, this is us? One of the things in my class that I really like to do with my students is to identify things that we all do, that we all have experience with, but we don't necessarily have a name for it. Or, or some may be aware of it, but sometimes it's, it's something that's not really well known. Um, like you're saying, the um, understanding the idea of an in-group and an out-group. That my in-group is me. That's a, that, that's mm -hmm. a pretty relatively common term, mm -hmm. um, but it's important to, especially in the building, educate, mm -hmm. building this concept, um, and talking about the narrative bias and saying, well, you know, you're you're you are going to our humans are going to try to find a narrative and explain sometimes the unexplainable, or the too difficult, or the complex, or uh, to understand would create a narrative around it because our brains don't like the idea of just, I don't know, right? Or mm -hmm. we, we do that. And so I try to show students that um, if, we, if you can see what they are, what these concepts are, and have a label for them, you have some kind of control over them because you can stop yourself yeah. and say, hey, I'm doing that, or I'm doing this. Mm -hmm. And one of the ones that I think when it comes to the 
breaking down the walls between us and them? How do we stop scapegoating? How do we stop um, a narrative? I the reason I bring up the narrative bias is narratives need protagonists and antagonists, mm-hmm. right? And I sometimes blow my students' mind with the idea of who's the protagonist in your narrative? Well, it's me, right? Or you in yours. Mm-hmm. Well, in someone's narrative, you're the antagonist, right? Potentially, right? Um, and that everybody's narratives are different and they're based off their perspective. Um, but one of the things is the idea is that we, if we understand that there's a key term, the most important thing I think I teach my students is the fundamental attribution error, which is saying um, you understand why you do things in context. So if, I, if I'm driving to, to the airport and I'm late and I cut somebody off, I, I'm not a bad driver, Right? I, I'm late. Uh, they might miss their flight. Like, but if if you and so you understand yourself in context mm-hmm. and your actions in context, because you you know your story. Now, if you're the other person and somebody cuts you off in traffic, your first reaction might be, "What a terrible driver!" And you don't put any more thought to it. You labeled them as one thing. We do that all the time because it's really easy. It's very it's a shortcut for us to be able to say. This person is nice. This person is mean. This person is intelligent. Because it, we don't want to look... We, it's too difficult for us to see them as these fully realized people that ebb and flow and have a huge range of emotion. And there's a lot of contextual reasons for people doing things. Um, but the group attribution error is doing that just on a large scale. Mm-hmm. Right? Is that you understand whatever in-groups you're in or whatever you're comfortable with. And, and we too often... Do not take the time to understand, just like the person in traffic, other groups that are different than us, and we label them a certain way. And I think by teaching people these concepts and these terms and making them real for them, it gives them labels um, for their own mind of what's happening or when they have these reactions or how they feel about others um, that hopefully gives them a chance to pause and think and say, I'm doing the group attribution error. I'm doing the fundamental attribution error. Or whatever it may be. Um, and if you know what it is and you can stop yourself from doing doing it, hopefully you can um, create a habit and a pattern of that in your life um, and individually create the change that you can in the world and hopefully have that cascade outwards. The other thing I always tell my students is, is that um, no one snowflake believes it's responsible for the avalanche, right? And too bad snowflake is used as a pejorative. I actually mean physical <laughs> snowflake and a physical avalanche. And that it can work both ways. That, that's a disastrous way of looking at it. But mm-hmm. every, every person that, that adds to this, that, that, you know, every snowflake that adds itself to you know, monumental change is part of that change and is responsible for that change. That's, that was a long answer, sorry. <laughs> and that's the be an upstander. Yes. That's the, our role, each of us, in our own way, can take in this moment as a part of a much greater movement. Thank you, Tim. This has been the Voices of Idaho with Dan Prinzing and Adam Thompson. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Wasman Center Podcast. As usual, if you have any music submissions, you can send those our way at info at Thanks again for listening, and we'll have another episode up on January 1st. See you then. I need
needs someone beside me to help me find my way back home. Cause this world is full of anger and I've been walking through some pain. So if we walk this road together, we can find our way back home again. It's a home of many colors, no ceilings and no walls, but there is can share this road together so if you walk with me my friend with you right here beside me we'll find a home with peace again it's a home of many colors no ceilings and no walls, but there is room for all our brothers with no graffiti in the halls. We can share this world together, so if you walk with me, my friend. With you right here beside me